A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Peter's first letter, chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, uh, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And bring your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. It's good to be with you all today, the second Sunday in the season of Easter. Remember that Easter is not just a day. It is a season of rejoicing. I maybe read this every, every year, but bear with me on this. N.T. Wright says, Easter tide ought to be a festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before, <laughs> with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder that the world doesn't take much notice of Easter if it is celebrated as the simple one-day happy ending tacked onto 40 days of fasting and gloom? Easter is the time to sow new seeds and plant about a few cuttings. If Calvary means putting to death things in your life that need killing off, if you are to flourish as a Christian and a truly human being, then Easter should mean planting, watering, and training up the things in your life, personal and corporate, that ought to be blossoming, filling the garden with color and perfume, and in due course, bearing fruit. I love that. The church exists because of resurrection. It's who we are. We're a people of resurrection. The church proclaims, even in a world of death, that he, still even, that he still is risen. That even as the world doesn't always look that way, doesn't look like crucifixion or looks like resurrection, it looks dark, that he is risen indeed. This week, each of our readings proclaim resurrection in the midst of doubt and suffering. Now, you may have noticed today that we begin our readings with the book of Acts instead of with an Old Testament reading. And that's intentional. In the season of Easter, we transition And so our narrative switches from the Old Testament to the book of Acts, and we begin to see the birth of the early church throughout this season. So that's always going to be our first reading in this season. But the question remains, in a world like this one, is resurrection really a thing that can happen? What about the way everything looks? What about the brokenness? What about the pain? What does resurrection mean now? And the truth is, it's difficult to live as a colony of resurrection in a country of death. It is difficult to live as the church. It is challenging to hold on to the good news that Christ is risen when everything else seems to stand against that fact. 
In our epistle reading, Peter says, we praise God because we've been born into a living hope. The proper response to this new identity that we have been given as the church is to praise God. Why do we praise him? Because he has taken the initiative. He has come to us. He has died for us. He rose again. And because of God's initiative, we have become a new people. We've been given a new life and a new birth because Jesus rose from the dead. And this means new birth in Christ is not something you can achieve through a self-help program. It's not something we get enough education and then we kind of step into new birth. New birth is something that God does, that God has accomplished. We have a role, we step in, we jump in, and we trust, but it is the work of God in us. Martin Luther used to say that when he said the Apostles' Creed, and he got to that statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit, he was reminded that it is the Holy Spirit who gives him the ability to believe. That, that he can't even believe on his own, but he trusts the Holy Spirit gives him that. So believing in the Holy Spirit means God gives us the ability to confess what we believe even when we struggle. I think this is especially important to remember in times of doubt. That your place as a Christian is not about your ability to believe God hard enough or muster up enough faith. So many of us in Christian traditions have been told we're not allowed to doubt or not allowed to question. One of the things I've wrestled with the most these past few years is how many of my friends have had a bad experience with church. They've had doubt or had questions. They're discouraged by perhaps their congregation's right-wing politics. They see leaders with abusive personalities. They find that the church is not accepting of all people. And when they question these things, they conclude that they must deconstruct their faith altogether. They must leave altogether. They leave the church and then explore a spiritual path of their own making. And I have great sympathy for this, but it's painful. It hurts. The reason why this is so maddening is sometimes we see a church tradition we came out of or we grew up in or a church we came from, and we think that's all of Christianity. So I have to leave Christianity in order to transition from that. But it's not. The things you are disappointed in about the church are wrong. And there are many Christians who would say so as well. In fact, in the Christian tradition, doubt and faith have always gone together. It is appropriate to question. It is appropriate to wonder, to explore. In fact, our passage points us to the fact that we don't even trust in our ability to have faith. Christianity is not about confidence in ourselves at all. It's about trusting in the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the great helps in these times is to remember faith is not just an individual experience. Faith is not this kind of individual exploration that I'm going through. It includes that, of course. But our modern world has tended to be so individualistic, focus on me getting the right belief, me getting my head straight, me getting the right system. But Peter says we're born into something. We're born into a living hope. So hope is not just something we have. It's something we're born into. The main thing that stuck out to the pagans about the earliest Christians was their hope. In fact, Paul describes the pagans, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, as those who have no hope. The world of ancient Greek and Roman civilization, as you know if you've studied this, was just beautiful. 
They were known for their courage, intellectual power, for beauty and art that was revolutionary. But Paul would say they lacked one thing. They lacked a deeply rooted hope. And so often today, I think we are tempted towards misplaced hope. For us, it's so critical that we remember that our ultimate hope as Christians is not in electing the right person. It's not in passing certain legislation. Now, don't mishear me. That can be really important, that justice is often carried out through those particular tangible means. I get that. Totally agree. But it is not ultimately what makes the world new. It is not our final hope. The Christian hope is alive, and it's rooted in the fact of the resurrection, and it points us towards God's restoration in the future. Because of Christ's resurrection, new creation has come to birth in the world, and new life has come to birth in each of us. And resurrection means the world is a different place. Now, Peter really likes this one preposition, you'll notice. The, one, the preposition into. So he says, we've been born again into a living hope, into an inheritance, into salvation. These are future things which will be revealed on the last day. And Peter says that our inheritance, which is that new world, is being kept safe. It's being kept out of sight for us, behind the thin, invisible curtain, the place where heaven and earth meet. Yet one day that curtain will be drawn back we will see heaven and earth come together fully. So faith, at least for Peter, is that thing that keeps us now connected to God's future world. Faith is that intersection, that thing that keeps us connected to that future inheritance and that future hope. And you'll notice that then Peter goes into this whole thing about suffering. If we have this future hope, it changes how we think about suffering. In times, I think of the greatest pain in our life. We hear from external sources, we hear two faulty messages. The first one is, it is up to you to fix this. You're going through pain, you need to make it right. When we suffer, we rightly, we want things to be familiar again and safe and good again. So think about how this manifests itself in our world. When there's evil in the world, we want to look at that thing and we want to find somebody to pin it on so that we can fix it. It's all their fault. That group that I hate, it's their fault. They need to be shamed or fixed or in more extreme forms, conquered so that we can make everything better. But there's another faulty message. So that's one message. The second faulty message is very different. This is often what we hear from other people when we go through difficult times. God has a plan. You heard that? You've gone through pain or suffering, and a well-meaning person comes along and says, well, God has a plan. God knows what he's doing or what he's up to. This is so dangerous because it's a refusal to call bad and evil and disorienting things bad and evil and disorienting. Say, no, those are wrong. Because we think, well, God must be weaving it all into this beautiful tapestry. Well, that doesn't seem right. Isn't God only for my good? Think about how this manifests itself when there's a tragedy. Thoughts and prayers, right? Well, thoughts and prayers, that's, that's really all we can do. Just think and pray. It's in God's hands now. We can't really do anything about this. Well, the truth is we live in a broken world. 
Because of sin's presence, the world is still chaotic and messy and bent against God's new creation. That means that things are complicated. So God is active in the world, but God is at work in the midst of the stuff, the midst of the brokenness, not through the evil stuff, but in the midst of it. So God does not bring tragedy upon us to teach us a lesson. Sickness is part of the broken world. So is betrayal. So is hardship. So when we experience a mass shooting, war, pandemic, racial inequality, we should simply look at those things and call them for what they are, evil and wrong. And yet, Peter says, suffering is the means by which the quality of Christian's faith can shine out all the more. All right, so this bridge is really important. God does not cause these things. God's working in the midst of things, not through these things. And yet somehow in the midst of suffering, Christians shine differently. There is something that happens in our midst. There's something about the ways that Christians respond in the midst of suffering that will shine. Hurt and pain are inevitable. But how we shine in the midst of hurt is what is different, Peter would say. Now, it's important really quick that we make a distinction between general suffering and suffering for our faith. Peter's first audience are experiencing both. Okay, they're going through general suffering in their own lives and economic circumstances and all that's surrounding them. And then they're also suffering for their faith. And there are so many Christians today literally suffering for their faith around the world. My mind is often drawn to this moment in 2017 when... ISIS claimed responsibility for two bomb blasts that struck Coptic churches in Egypt on Palm Sunday, killing at least 47 people. One was an explosion in the city of Tanta, which killed 29 and injured 71 as they prayed during Palm Sunday. A second blast struck the Egyptian port city of Alexandria three hours later, killing 18 and wounding 35 we think about Egypt, Christians account for 10% of the population of Alexandria. They're a suffering, persecuted minority, and they have been repeatedly targeted by ISIS and other groups over and over again. Now, we have to look at that and go, we don't deal with that kind of suffering in this nation as Christians. We don't. And we shouldn't try to manufacture that or to play the victim Christians don't shine when we demand our story be the primary story in the culture. That's not when we shine. In fact, when we do that, we actually undermine the Christian story, which is about self-giving towards others, right? But when Christians actually suffer, when Christians endure suffering because of our faith or in the midst of our faith, and we still praise, our praise becomes a signpost of God's new world. There's a shining that happens in the midst of that. But let me say this. You can't manufacture that. You can't tell people, hey, you need to shine in this circumstance. They're going through tragedy. That would be the worst thing that, that you should do. You can't make that happen. But as we're immersed in the story, as our lives change, something does happen in the midst of suffering. I think about the families of Mother Emanuel AME Church after the shooting in Charleston. Even I think about the Egyptian Christians that I mentioned. Some of the families of the victims were interviewed on Egyptian television saying that they forgive the people who did the bombing and that they want them to be healed. 
fact, you can look it up on YouTube. There's this Egyptian news anchor who's interviewing them. And then as they're talking and they say they want forgiveness and healing, he is just stunned. He doesn't know what to say. And then he proclaims this. He says, these people are made of a different substance. That's what he says to the world. Egyptian Christians are made of steel, he said. I read this week um, something from Dick Kuntz. He's the husband to Catherine Kuntz, who was the head of the school at Covenant. Um, One of the six, she was one of the six killed at Covenant. And he wrote this, her husband wrote this. Catherine would be embarrassed if our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. She was a champion for others and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame. Therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family, equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them. We count on the Lord and on our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains. We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. If you didn't catch on who the seventh family was, it was the shooter. Um, So for him to say that, to me, when I think about people shining in the midst of suffering, that's what I think about. We ought never as Christians to pretend that suffering is just not that big a deal or to power through. We can trust that God is with us in the midst of suffering and that God is doing a deep work in our hearts. Now, let me say, sometimes there's work in our hearts and and God brings miracles, and I do believe in that. Sometimes there's suffering and there's miracles. And when that happens, we can rejoice because our God does miracles. What miracles are is they're signposts of what God's new world will look like one day. So what they do is they point us to one day there will be no more pain or hurt, tears. So when a miracle happens, it points us and says, this is what that future world is going to look like. So sometimes that work looks like that. But sometimes the hope is just in the reality God's with us in suffering and that we're rooted in a greater hope. In faith and hope and love and even in suffering, we trust the God who makes us shine. Our gospel reading today takes place after Christ's resurrection, but before the disciples knew about it. So the disciples are all huddled together. They're afraid that the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. So they lock the door. Makes sense. Then Jesus appears through the locked door, which is so interesting. And we wish that John would just tell us a little bit more about Jesus' physical body. Like, could they do an inspection of him or something? Because it seems like one of the features of Jesus' resurrected body is he's physical. So he eats fish. He has scars you can see and touch. And yet he's differently physical. So he can appear through locked doors. So we don't get all of that. But the disciples are told to receive the Holy Spirit. They're being sent not just to preach or to talk, They're not sent to just have a spiritual experience or be part of the spirit-filled club. Yay, you have the Holy Spirit. You're part of this special group. They're sent to embody forgiveness, is what it says. Once again, we see the church is called to be forgiveness people, to be a people who proclaim liberation, the year of God's favor. 
We're to live like our God, the one who forgives sins, to be a sacrament of forgiveness for the world. Now, sometimes we fail to do this. Often we fail to do this. But as the church, we are to live and embody this resurrection life, this forgiveness, this reconciliation. Now, let's talk about what forgiveness doesn't mean. Forgiveness does not mean that's okay. It's fine. Not that big a deal. No problem. No, forgiveness is actually the ability to say that was wrong. That was a big deal. It was hurtful. And yet I choose to release the offense. Forgiveness is also different from trust. So an offense from someone close to us represents a break in trust. There's different levels of trust that can be broken. We lose trust for that person, and often then that relationship needs to change. When we forgive someone, it doesn't mean we automatically go back into the same kind of relationship that we had with them because there hasn't been trust that's been rebuilt yet. Okay? We can set boundaries on a relationship while also trusting it's not our responsibility to bring vengeance against them. We can release the offense even as we set those boundaries. Forgiveness is an act that frees up that person, okay? So that's the first thing. It frees up that person in that sense. But it is, so it's a declaration of liberation for the offender. But second, it's also a declaration of liberation for you, the one who's been offended. So we're often so bound up by unforgiveness that it it holds us, it bounds us up, it chains us. Louis B. Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. And discover that the prisoner was you. Now, we don't forgive just because it was a good idea. Forgiveness is rooted in the forgiving God. God is always faithful to forgive anyone who comes to him. So we, as the church, carry forgiveness as Christ carries forgiveness, living as forgiveness people. And this means we've been given a job that's way above our pay grade that this can be hard and we don't do well with it most of the time. But the good news is that Jesus believes we're up to it, not on our own, but because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, there was one disciple who was not with them when Jesus walked through the locked door. He doesn't want to believe their testimony. (laughs) He wants proof. He wants to see the scars. So Jesus appears to them again for Thomas' sake. Now, it's so doubting Thomas. That's his nickname. But Jesus never disparages Thomas. He shows Thomas what he needs to see. He says, you believe because you see. But there's also a recognition there's going to be other people who can't touch the scars, who can't see Jesus eat fish or break bread. Those people like us who are dependent on the story of the witnesses, of the apostles, that's what we trust in. We're a people of a story. And Jesus says, for us, there's hope. There's special, special blessing that meets us there. There's nothing wrong with faith that comes from sight. But there will be times when we can't see. And when meets us there. Now think about this for a minute. Somehow scars last into resurrection life. Why? Our story is always about the scars, about the dying, about God's great love for us. So Jesus' scars don't magically disappear as if nothing has ever happened. The scars remind us this is the same God who died for us. It's the one who suffered for us and has brought about new creation. So when we experience suffering, when we're scarred, 
We can place our scars in the scars of Jesus, the one who suffered for us and who suffers with us. Those of you that are a little bit older or you just lived some life, you know that some of your most painful memories seem to come up again in times where you see someone else suffering from something similar that you've experienced in the past. We go through things in life that we would never wish on anybody else in a million years. We would never want them to face that or to experience that. But then that very thing becomes the witness to that other person that they can make it through. So in God's mercy, he doesn't take away our scars. We place our scars in his scars. I like the language of the gospel translation we read there where it says, take your hand and put it in my scars is what it says to Thomas. I thought about that. Like take your life and your experience and put it in my scars. When you suffer, I suffer. When we place our scars in his scars, we see that God raised Christ and God will see his new world, including all of us through. It is, in fact, when Thomas sees the scars, when he sees the self-giving love of God, that the same God who's conquered death is the same God who suffers, that he makes this stunning declaration. He says, my Lord and my God. In fact, Thomas becomes the first person in the book of John to look at Jesus and say, that's God. He shows them his scars, Jesus does, and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. If we follow in the way of Jesus the church will be a people of scars and the spirit. We will be a people of scars. We will suffer. We will go through difficult times. Faith at times will not often make sense. We will at times feel like we are forsaken. And this allows us to stand in solidarity with a hurting world. But it is those very scars which proclaim to a broken world that God can and will bring us through. Forgiveness and suffering are two really difficult things to talk about. (laughs) And many of us look at these stories and we go, I can't possibly imagine doing this. I'm not like the Egyptian Christians. I'm not made of steel. I'm made of something, but not steel. I'm not like Dick Koontz. I could never say anything like that. That's where we remember this is always the work of God. It's not us. Think for a minute about our Acts reading. The day of Pentecost comes. And there's all these people speaking in tongues and there's tongues of fire and there's this wind and Peter all of a sudden steps up and boldly explains what's going on. Now think about that for just a minute. Just a little bit before that, Peter couldn't even look at at an everyday person um, by a fire in private and tell them that he knew Jesus. And then all of a sudden something has changed. He denied Jesus three times, and now something has shifted. Um, One of our great church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, wrote, He who could not endure the questioning of a poor girl now discourses with such great confidence in the middle of people all breathing murder upon him. This in itself became an indisputable proof of the resurrection. For Listen to this. For whenever the Holy Spirit is present, people of clay are changed into people of gold. This is the power of God. Clay changed to gold. Each week, we are confronted with our own weakness and frailty and our own sin. One of the reasons we're taking a break from our normal confession during Eastertide, as is traditional, but we say the prayer of confession almost every single week at church. And one of the reasons for that is that we're confronted every week with the fact that, yeah, 
on our own. We're sinful. We are broken. And yet, we see the very power of God in our midst. Beautiful things come from broken things. Boldness where there is denial. And I'd encourage you today, don't be ashamed of your scars. That when we go through pain and we tell the story of that pain, we are remembering and declaring that our God delivers us not from suffering, but through it. And we don't do so alone. Christ has breathed his spirit upon us. God is active at work, healing, restoring, and making all things new. And I'll close with this. At the beginning of 2020, uh, my family and I, we moved into our house that we're in now, and it had just been remodeled. And I thought it was just beautiful, just perfect. We had gone through a process. We're like, can we buy a house here in Nashville? How's this going to work? And, uh, and so when we moved in and we saw everything's brand new and it's remodeled, it's just, oh, man, this is perfect. So one of the weaknesses in me is every time Ashley wants to make a tweak to the house, do something new or paint something or go, um, my unfortunate response is, I'm just afraid we're going to mess it up. Like, like, we like this. I don't want to mess it up, right? The same is true with the garden outside. Ashley's such a great gardener. She does this and she makes beautiful, I would say, you make beautiful things out of the dust is what I tell her, right? But my fear is always when we plant something, we have to maintain it or it's going to get overgrown and it's going to look tacky. And so just don't plant anything. So I would go for a very Spartan garden, okay? The truth is gardens are hard work and gardens are worth it. Anything that we plant of beauty may not do what we want it to do. Sometimes there's fungus that gets out there. There's a nitrogen deficiency, found out about that. This month, we found out that cats keep pooping in Ashley's gardens. But regardless of all these things, it's important to cultivate beauty. I've seen that over these past few months, too. My dad and my parents are here. And my dad has been remodeling our exterior garage to turn it into an office for me, which is just such an incredible gift. And, and I'm in awe because I didn't get all the skills. <laughs> I didn't learn all the skills that he has. And so I go, how did you do that? Every single time I see this new step. And he's worked so hard and he's created something beautiful. I can show you the pictures. They're awesome. I have always loved this image of the church as a garden of the resurrection in a land of death that we are the people who live resurrection when everything is bent against it. And that's messy because church people do dumb stuff. They have nitrogen deficiency, fungus, an occasional cat poop. Sometimes they're the cat. But they also bloom. In a cynical world focused only on pain and a triumphalist world that says pain's not real. The church bears the world's scars. Pain is real, and there's more to the story. In a world that's independent, the church says we need God and we need each other. And in a world that's vengeful, bent on payback, the church says you are forgiven. May we remember who we are, and may we live as resurrection people. Amen.